Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Animales humanos, animales humanos, animales, animales, animales humanos, animales humanos, animales, Hello and welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. We're a radio station program, a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This is advocacy, activism, conservation, protection and appreciation. We are broadcasting from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia, streamed live via the 3CR website. We have podcasts which are available on the 3CR website and the Freedom of Species website, which is freedomofspecies.org. And all our previous podcasts are available via iTunes. Now, uh, my name is Roy Taylor. Uh, If I sound a bit rushed, I've just arrived in the studio, so please bear with me. Um, We have a great interview lined up today that I conducted earlier in the week with Peter Chen, Now, Dr. Peter Chen um, will be speaking at this year's, in October's, next month's Animal Activist Forum. And Peter, uh, we'll be chatting chatting today about um, lessons that can be learnt from the history of the animal rights movement in Australia. I learnt quite a few things, including the, uh, about Alfred Deakin, uh, I believe, was vegetarian, um, one of the first Prime Ministers of Australia. So, Peter is a lecturer in Australian politics, media and policy at the University of Sydney. He's the author of uh, some books, Electronic Engagement Guide for Public Managers, Australian Politics in a Digital Age, and his forthcoming book of interest to us, in particular, Animal Welfare in Australia, Politics and Policy. So, uh, we've got that interview coming up. Uh, but first, I want to talk about the Animal Activists Forum because it's a project that I'm personally involved in. And the Animal Activism Animal Activists Forum is running on the second weekend of October. And we're going to be in the Gold Coast. And it is a two-day conference for people interested in animal advocacy, protection, all the things that the show really today is uh, concerned with. And it's going to be in the Gold Coast, uh, Southport Community Centre, over two days, with, I believe, a day of activism on the Friday beforehand. Tickets are on sale. You've got to get tickets at the website. And previously, it has been a really good event, so I'm expecting a no less this year. Although, I'm taking a little less of a role 
this year, but um, a very capable team will be running the event. We've got about 35, 38 speakers over the course of the weekend with three rooms, so you can choose which room to go to. We've got representatives from Sea Shepherd, I believe, Animals Australia, uh, Animal Liberation New South Wales, Animal Liberation Queensland, whole host of groups who are working across the country to protect animals. And if you're at all interested in getting involved and learning contacts with people in the movement, uh, finding where your own particular skills and resources can be put to best practice to help animals, really it is the event to go to. So uh, ticket sales will be closing the week before, so I really do recommend going to the website and getting a ticket for this year's Animal Activist Forum on the Gold Coast in Queensland. This is Lawrence Pope, Victorian Advocates for Animals. You know, it doesn't matter where I am, around Australia or across the globe, people ask me the same question. Why don't we have programs like 3CR's Freedom of Species? Why don't we have independent radio? Not radio that's a puppet of the millionaires and the billionaires, but radio that reflects the real concerns of people like you, the very salt of this great country, from Warrnambool to Wonthaggy, from Malakuta to Kootamundra, 3CR, they're kind of cats, they're for the bats, that's independent radio, that's freedom of species, not the enslavement of species, I said the freedom of species. You know what to do, donate to independent radio and warm your heart while you're cooling the planet. This is Lawrence Pope for Victorian Advocates for Animals and 3CR, wishing your species all the best. And you are listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 AM. And on today's show, we're going to be listening to an interview I conducted earlier in the week with Peter John Chen, who is a lecturer um, at Sydney University uh, in Australian politics, media and policy. He's got a book coming out shortly, Animal Welfare in Australia, Politics and Policy. Uh, so we'll go through to that interview now. First of all, uh, could you introduce yourself and maybe uh, give us a bit of uh, background about yourself? Yeah, sure. So my name is Peter Chen and I'm a lecturer in political science at the University of Sydney. I've been at the University of Sydney for uh, about seven years now and I teach Australian politics and media politics. Um, I have had a long uh, personal interest in animal welfare and rights issues in Australia um, and following the 2011 live export suspension, that kind of shifted to a kind of active political interest because I thought there was something very interesting going on there. Um, and then when I went and looked at the kind of literature on animal welfare policy making, as opposed to, in a sense, the, um, the extensive literature on animal ethics, I found that particularly in Australia, there really hasn't been that much written other than, say, the work of Siobhan O'Sullivan, who I'm sure your listeners know, who um, used to be at the University of Melbourne, but is now at UNSW. Um, and I come from an extremely, uh, you know, conventional political science perspective. And so um, what I've been doing for the last um, three years is producing a book which um, comes out from uh, Sydney University Press at the end of September um, this year. And the book is on, in a sense, animal welfare policy making in Australia from a very kind of political science perspective. And the... Um, the reason why I thought that was an interesting project to do was partly because I thought there was a, a gap in the literature 
picture, particularly outside of um, some of the excellent work that's been done in political sociology in Australia around animal activist organisations and social movements. Um, and, uh, and so what I did was I tried to do a lot of time actually talking with people in animal using industries as activists and policymakers, both bureaucratic and elected, to get a kind of triangulated view on the way animal policy is made in Australia, and that's um, that's kind of where I'm at. I am very curious if you've got any thoughts as to why political sciences may be lagged behind other social sciences when it comes to animal issues. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good question, and I think it's partly because the, the discipline has both traditionally, generally, but also I think in Australia, actually been quite a, a conservative um, part of the uh, the social sciences and usually the kind of more um, radical, uh, socially progressive uh, thinkers have tended to be located in, say, philosophy, uh, cultural studies and sociology. I think that's changing in recent years and certainly my department at the University of Sydney um, can be characterised since its inception as an extremely conservative um, sort of organisation, except that we've had a number of troublemakers. And so um, there was uh, one uh, very high-profile scholar who was at the hallmark, uh, at, the, at the forefront of um, gay liberation in New South Wales. Um, and he was teaching classes on uh, gay liberation when uh, male homosexual acts were still illegal in this state. So that's sort of edgy, but by and I think I address this issue very well. And I guess the, the thing that I was thinking about in terms of talking at the Animal Activist Forum was um, that, uh, and this is the kind of conceit of my presentation, is that um, in, in a sense, Australia has this kind of two really interesting historical periods around animal activism. Um, and uh, so if I can just elaborate a little bit, is that okay? Absolutely, yes. Elaborate away. Yep. So, um, so for example, what I often say to people is um, there was this um, there's this moment in time when um, animal activists are starting to really hit their stride. They're making a big impact, um, both in terms of changing public policy also changing the way people think about animals. They're forming new organisations. They're re reaching into both the political and social sphere in Australian society. They're forming connections with international organisations. There's a kind of diversity of philosophy from what you might call welfareists to total T abolitionists. Um, there uh, is a emerging kind of industry around the uh, the consumption of vegetarian food um, and we look like we're in the kind of period of time where a lot of significant policy change is going to occur and while this sounds like where we're at right now in Australian history it was actually at the um, end of the 19th and start of the 20th century um, and uh, what we've seen is, you know, a kind of revolution in thinking around animal politics in Australia. Um, but then in a period of 20 years' time, all that has virtually disappeared in this country. The remaining animal organisations are all the relatively conservative RSPCAs. Um, all the vegetarian societies and restaurants around Australia have virtually disappeared from the, the landscape. Um, Australians are eating more meat than ever before and the issue of kind of animal welfare policy has gone very much on the back burner. And so what I wanted to talk about in my talk really was that sometimes we think about 
social and political change is kind of um, inevitable and evolutionary, and it just always kind of builds on what goes before. But actually, there's this really long period of time from really around the First World War to the 1970s, where Australia went significantly backwards in terms of animal activism. And so what I wanted to do is talk to current activists about the research I've done, both in terms of what's going on at the moment, but also the kind of historical work to say um, you can't just assume necessarily that, you know, your work is automatically going to lead to progression and there can be actually considerable, um, you know, reversals of fortune in a way. That's very interesting. Um, I have talked to in the past animal activists who were involved in the early days of the radical movement in the UK in the 1970s. And looking back, they talk about the early days of their radical actions. And hearing them speak now, it, it sounds bizarre, but they honestly thought, certainly the one some that I spoke to, that they were going to win. And I mean total win, like close down with a section and close down the entirety of the livestock industry within 10, 15 years. Mm. Um, so there is, um, and that was on the basis of a few small victories that they initially had. Uh, it is very tempting to see history as a as a, a, a linear progression. And, and there's a phrase, don't be on the wrong side of history. Yeah, yeah that's, that's exactly right. And there were a number of factors that came together really at the start of the 20th century, which were instrumental in, in a sense, pushing back against both the radical uh, kind of objectives of the animal movement in Australia um, and also, in a sense, the capacity to, to get significant reforms through in, you know, institutionally as well. And so I think if we have a kind of longer historical view, we can sort of, you know, kind of check how we feel against kind of previous history but also look for things that are, you know, different. You know, so there are there are many aspects of our kind of contemporary period of advocacy that are very similar to the start of the 20th century. You know, and so, for example, often people talk about um, the mediatization, right, of the animal movement and there's kind of new media strategies that, you know, people are using the, the you know, effectiveness of, um, of documentary film, for example, and changing public attitudes. Well, we, we have seen this before. There was this, you know, huge kind of movement in popular fiction writing uh, at the start of the 20th century that was aimed to do very similar things. So those things aren't necessarily new. And I'm not saying, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, um, but it is interesting to look at some of these things that do seem to recur and ask ourselves, you know, why do they recur? You know, what is it that um, that activists are actually interested in achieving in reaching for similar strategies almost 100 years apart? And then also ask questions about, you know, what is different? And I think the the differences are probably where activists can start to think about, you know, new strategies to revitalise the movement or new strategies to think about how to deal with uh, setbacks and things like that. And clearly, following the live export, you know, kind of breakthrough campaign, if we can describe it that in 2011, um, the issue of live exports has gone significantly backwards, particularly with, you know, the expansion of live exports into a growing market in China, right? So, you know, thinking about, you know, the past, thinking about those issues historically, but also thinking about things that are different today can be very useful. I think, um, and generative of new ideas. I'm curious, you mentioned there was books at the start of the 20th century that were concerned with animal issues. Uh, I didn't know of any. I didn't know of books going back as far as the 1970s. Oh, um, actually, maybe something's just come to mind. I know that um, the author of um, 
Alice in Wonderland wrote an essay on uh, vivisection, but I didn't know any early stuff at the start of the 20th century. Yeah, well, the, the stuff that, the, the, that I'm thinking about in terms of the, uh, the start of the 20th century, things like the, the Red Road and stuff like that, were, in a sense, kind of um, novels. Um, so they were aimed at a popular audience, and um, I think that's probably the kind of interesting part of it. So they weren't necessarily what we see in the 1970s, this kind of extremely highbrow sort of accounts, right? Um, they were very much aimed at popularising these ideas because at the start of the 20th century, the movement is embedded in a much more social movement kind of context. It's about mass participation. Um, and it also has, I think, something that we still see the echoes of today, um, an aspect of an interaction between classes that is both... Um, interesting and sometimes problematic. So if you think about some of the motivations of the early um, intervention in working animals in Australia, it was often aimed at uh, horses in the urban context where uh, animal welfare organisations were often um, run by middle class and often middle class women um, because they didn't have access to other forms of political influence um, who were attempting to regulate the behaviour of working class men. Um, and uh, certainly we can see a similar discussion around, say, the suspension of greyhound racing in New South Wales, where the animal rights slash welfare movement in Australia remains you know, highly gendered. Um, and it does remain, I think, very still, just, you know, very strongly divided by class. So there's a, there's a, a kind of aspect that we can think about a strong degree of continuity and the, the limitations of that strategy. So certainly I think the weakness of the early 20th century model was there was a, a heavy focus on interclass moralizing. Um, and that has been seen to be problematic, not just in the achievement of objectives around animal welfare, but certainly if you Think about critiques of, say, the sustainable environmental debates um, uh, since the 1970s. Um, one of the weaknesses of a lot of those models is it's about individual action that is based in a kind of moral framework. And certainly I think we see with the kind of very short life cycle um, of some of these kind of media um, concerns about particular animal issues is they resolve themselves very quickly because it's hard to sustain a kind of moral concern as opposed to other sorts of political concerns over time. Surely that's inevitable, though, because um, this is a movement that's based around the concern for others, essentially on a moral basis. It's not something that you can really have maybe solidarity with in the same way that a member of the working class can have member of uh, solidarity with the member, a member of the working class in another culture that might be extolled, I mean, by, say, a Marxist. This is a movement that's essentially based in a one-sided moral fashion. Feel free to disagree with me if you disagree with that. Sure, sure. So I guess uh, I guess what I'd say is, um, well, that might may be inevitable, right? So it, it may be entirely impossible to move away from that um, somewhat kind of paternalistic notion of like this. Uh, that does lead to some difficulties in the notion of um, activism as being relatively tight to very specific types of species, you know, the kind of, um, you know, all the, you know the, the charismatic megafauna, but also recently now with the shift to concern about companion animals and things like that, there are certain sorts of animals um, that because we have this greater affinity with, we extend this moral concern. On the other hand, I think there are some, you know, parts of the activist movement that are challenging that. And certainly some of the protests that we've seen in Australia around shark 
protocols, I think are a very interesting way in which there has been a move away from us a certain certain kind of anthropocentric uh, evaluation of the utility of animals um, and extending concern really to those animals that we have this kind of moral interest in because we have an affinity with them. And that is probably one of the interesting, I think, uh, lessons from the early 20th century and one of the questions for the, the 21st century. One of the weaknesses of the early 20th century was that the animal kind of rights movement, if you want to call it that, it didn't call itself that. But um, it was very invested in other social movements that it lived and died on the basis of. And one of the social movements that was quite closely tied to was that of spiritualism. And so if we think about one of the kind of, you know, most famous examples of an activist of the animal rights movement in the early 20th century, Alfred Deakin, who became Australia's Prime Minister, who was both a vegetarian um, and who wrote the original legislation for the RSPCA in the state of Victoria when he was a legislator there. He was also very closely tied to the spiritualist movement. Um, and those sort of movements were overlaid and the eventual weakness of the spiritual movement in terms of in a sense this kind of basis in charlatanism really led to it drawing down the other movements it was associated with um, and so if we think about the 21st century some of the ways in which we might think differently about animality and move away from a strictly moralistic and paternalistic concern might be related to linking movements together that have been firewalled for some re reason. And the two examples that I would give would be the mainstream environmental movement, who often think of animals in terms of populations or ecosystems or bioregionality and not the kind of individuated animal um, concern that uh, many in the animal uh, activist community still kind of retain. And also the other one is Dinesh Wadawal, my colleague's work on labour and the relationship between labour rights and animal issues. And that's both in terms of the way in which we might think about the people who work in animal-using industries and extend a kind of broader uh, concern for both the animals in those industries and the people who work within those industries, often who are at the bottom of the social spectrum, who we you know, do attempt to regulate from a kind of middle-class perspective often, but also in a sense of the way in which we think about animals as labour in our society and that they perform labour, be that the elephant who performs for us as a display animal or the pet who performs a function for us within our household. I did not know anything about Alfred Deacon, yes? Yes. So, and he was a vegetarian, was he vegetarian or Alfred? Well, he, he would have, he would describe himself as following the Spartan diet, um, because terminology was pretty loose. But yes, essentially he was both a spiritualist and a vegetarian. Um, there were lots of vegetarians in Australia at that time. And this is one of the other kind of lessons I think that's important in this story is why does vegetarianism die out in Australia um, really around the First World War? And um, there are a number of reasons for that. But one of the main reasons is the way in which the government for the first time starts creating these standards around what's called a diet for national survival. And they start writing into those diets things like minimum consumption of dairy, minimum consumption of meat as um, a, a kind of aspect of um, a kind of um, eugenics sort of uh, view of Australian population. The reason why we had to have a program on 3CR was because of the failure uh, of other radio stations, so-called independent radio stations, which were not letting us have our say. It's up to you to keep independent voices on air. 
Donate now to 3CR's 40th birthday, Radical Radiothon. 3CR was giving us the opportunity to tell our story as it was and I wouldn't be exaggerating if I say 3CR has been the backbone of our struggle in Australia. Donate now to keep Radio Radical. You're listening to 3CR. This is Freedom of Species Animal Activism on the Airwaves. We're going back now to an interview I did earlier on in the week with Dr. Peter John Chen, lecturer in politics at the University of Sydney, who's discussing the history of the animal welfare movement in Australia. Often government policies regarding food consumption are influenced by the food industry. Was this national survival, as in survival of the national farming industry, or was it indeed a health movement? Um, you mentioned eugenics, because um, governments across the world at that time were heavily influenced by eugenics and the desire to see a healthy population, yeah? Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, if you think about the two major aspects of Australian kind of agricultural production that we might talk about from an ethics perspective, right? So um, the use of grazing animals, you know, cattle and sheep, and also dairying. Very early in Australia's colonial history, those uh, industries as having uh, essential developmental role in shaping Australian society. So um, the uh, the use of what was called the portable larder, you know, the cattle or sheep, that could move um, was part of the way in which the reach of the white Australia into Aboriginal society was facilitated. So they took food with them that was both audible um, and um, and uh, uh, reflected the kind of farming patterns in the UK. And dairying was set up under the what was called the closer farming movement in the, the 18th and 19th century to socially engineer a sort of Australian society that was basically around small landholders working out of dairies and things. Things like that. So from the very get-go, the, the notion of meat consumption, um, the notion of the use of animals was seen as part of a national project of turning Australia into a European society. And then into the 20th century, that goes from being an unstructured kind of what you might call industry policy to being associated with nationalism around the First World War. Um, and also many of the free thinkers who existed in fringe religions prior to the First World War convert to become Anglicans in many ways because it's more patriotic. So there's this variety of forces that lead to a narrowing of dissension and free thinking combined with, in a sense, the the problems inherent in the spiritualist movement um, that then undermines associated social movements like the temperance-type movements but also um, the animal rights movement. Was spiritualism tarnished with an element of the image of something that was continental and not English, or was that a very English thing, portrayed it as something as a maybe German kind of influence on culture in the in First World War? Well, no, that's actually a really good question. No, I mean, spiritualism was, was very English, but spiritualism had within it the seed of its own destruction. Spiritualism was sort of um, uh, promoted, it proselytised through public lectures, um, and the public lecture movement, as uh, increasingly Australian society attracted more you know, academics and scholars, 
well, they were increasingly debunking the claims of the spiritualists. So the spiritualists were kind of defeated on their own terms because, in a sense, their, you know, their, you know, parapsychology didn't kind of stack up in modernising society and modernist tradition. But in terms of the kind of foreigners issue, I think there's a, another part of that story, which is that the total T abolitionists in the early 20th century um, were often associated with the anti-vivisectionists. They were the radical fringe of the movement at that time. And certainly anti-vivisection did have a very German orientation. And so Australians activists were both very aware of the debates that were going on in the United Kingdom um, from, you know, Richard Martin's law onwards. But they were also engaged in other social movements in other countries. So from the get-go, they were very international in their orientation. And so people who say, well, you know, look at Pedder today or these other kind of international organisations and how, you know, international the kind of movement is today. What I would say is, well, the movement was very international 100 years ago as well. Yes, uh, and actually it reminded me of how Karl Marx had criticised the animal rights movement, I believe in Das Kapital, on the basis that animal rights was a bourgeois movement that allowed the bourgeoisie to salve their conscience for the exploitation they did did the, the proletariat by allowing them to do something that made them feel better. Sure about that, but certainly I think I mean you can you can you can read that in two ways. I think that the first way is that it's safe to say that um, when you look at the laws that kind of came in uh, early on, that were kind of like bourgeois classes right around the world. I think that's undeniable. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a reason for that. They are, they are the kind of politically active group. They're educated. They've, they've got access to these new ideas. They're literate. And that is, you know, rare. Um, so there's kind of truth in that it's bourgeois, but I don't think it's essentially bourgeois or necessarily bourgeois. But certainly the initial laws tended to regulate working men and not the owners of the animals. So if you saw a working man flogging a horse in a city street, which is a common kind of criticism, then, you know, you could, you know, initiate some laws under sort of the Police Powers Act and they would come and sort of, you know, fine that man for working the animal. And yet the kind of person who actually owned the animal and employed the working man and who may have, you know, put the screws on that worker to, uh, to you know, have high levels of productivity and not provided the animal with sufficient care, uh, which is the ultimate source, was often excluded from regulation. And so this has been a, a common kind of way in which um, regulation often does fall on working people. And you see that today where, you know, when there is sort of um, some sort of undercover video within, say, a slaughterhouse in Australia, often the capitalist owners of that um, institution will say, the, the classic kind of excuse, this is just a few bad apples, right? It's just a few bad apples, but we're going to take action to punish these people and retrain them or they're going to be fired or whatever it happens to be. And so to some extent, you know, if um, animal rights and animal welfare is still concerned largely of the urban middle classes, which I think it still is to many extent, um, then the kind of hammer still tends to fall on those kind of working people as opposed to more systematic things. I think also, um, and I'm not an expert on Karl Marx, but I think also Karl Marx probably did object to the elevation of animals because Karl Marx did place a lot of political legitimacy on struggle. And so people became um, class conscious, they became political actors, and they had a degree of political legitimacy in the claims they made if they they themselves were struggling. And so Carl would probably have been a little bit down on people who acted on behalf of others 
society, and that's probably where he gets that view from. But Karl Marx is also a man of his time and probably, you know, didn't really think about animal rights at all, very favourably, I imagine. Although there were people thinking uh, uh, thinking favourably of animal rights at that time who were indeed products of the time just as much as he was. Oh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. But um, I think I think that talks about how some of these kind of progressive social movements, you know, both historically and today, have, you know, big cleavages between them and not necessarily a lot of... Um, a lot of interaction, right? Um, and that is, uh, I think, um, historically been a problem for some social movements, right? Because they haven't reached their concerns uh, horizontally across society. Um, and I think with regards to where, you know, animal advocacy is today, if we look at the kind of conflict over kangaroo culling in the ACT, I think is a classic example, where you have, you know, what we might call mainstream animal uh, activists completely at loggerheads with mainstream environmental um, activists uh, through the, the lens of the Green Party there, right? Yeah, absolutely. And both essentially middle-class movements, yeah? Yeah, exactly right, but but um, but not necessarily, and I think that's part of the story. And um, I think uh, the, um, the decline of the radical nature of the uh, animal rights movement at the turn of the 20th century in Australia is part of the reason why it became so moribund, because it wasn't necessarily a movement that... In- incorporated a lot of ideas, but also I think, you know, that um, any movement that does remain uh, within one social class is obviously going to have difficulties in terms of achieving the political legitimacy necessary to introduce what is, at the end of the day, going to be some form of coercive measure of regulation. I'm going to play devil's advocate now and, and uh, on, on the basis of two things, and, and isn't democracy inevitably always going to uh, part of it be a coercion of those with lower numbers in the population if the if a larger part of the demos votes votes in a certain way so that's my first point and, and secondly if if you are the element of the population with the most political power and you vote in a certain way for animal rights and animal rights is is in the in in the part of the demos with the greatest political power isn't that good for animal rights activists if they're going to have a, an element of the population, a certain demographic behind the cause, isn't it good to have the one that's got a relatively large amount of political power? Tell me where I'm wrong on that. No, I don't necessarily say you're wrong, but probably what I'd say is I question whether that's sustainable, right? So, um, Is there a problem with having a single demographic and indeed one with a great amount of political power behind your movement? Yes. Yeah, so, so here's where I think, you know, the, the historical lens can be quite useful. So if we think about the start of the 20th century where the emerging bourgeois elite class in Australia, their failure to break out of that, I think, meant that their grip of that authority was, was weak and not sustainable in the longer term. So they managed to introduce, you know, reforming laws at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. They set up many, many institutions that, that, um, still exist today, like the RSPCAs. But very quickly, they are demobilised, um, and they're demobilised in the face of other kind of social forces. And a good example of that would be the power base of rural interests in Australian society. And that is, um, I think, so I think that's a kind of answer your question, but that also talks about what is different today in that often animal activists talk, talk about rural interests as being, you know, pretty naturally powerful compared to 100 years. Years ago, rural interest capacity to have influence over public policy is massively reduced. And we often just don't see that 
until we see something like the Greyhounds ban in New South Wales, which showed actually how weak the National Party's power over some areas of policy making can be. If you want to learn more, I presume your book is the first place to go, yes? Um, it's called something like Animal Welfare in Australia, Policy and Politics, something boring like that. I like very descriptive touch So if people want to learn more, they can head along to the Animal Activist Forum that's going to be held in, on the Gold Coast in October. Thanks very much for your time, Peter. Thank you. Cheers. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. Hello, you've been listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR, 3CR, 855 AM. That was an interview with Peter John Chen, lecturer in political science at University of Sydney. Now, Peter's going to be talking uh, in October, in about four weeks' time, on the Animal Activist Forum, which is a forum uh, aimed at and allowing and facilitating networking amongst animal activists in Australia and sharing kind of best practice amongst activist groups. It's going to be held in the Go- at Southport in the Gold Coast, and you can get tickets at activistsforum.com. Ticket sales close on, I believe, the 8th of October, and the event is on the 14th and 15th uh, of October. Or is it the 15th and 16th? Certainly that weekend on the Gold Coast. Um, so it'd be great to see you there. I will be going up from Melbourne up to the Gold Coast for the Animal Activists Forum. Um, other things that are going on at the moment, we're entering the dark weeks of the spring racing carnival, that vile horse racing carnival that goes on every year. But there is not uh, an absence of opposition. Fortunately, the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses will be doing its work in opposition to the horse racing industry, highlighting four main factors, four main things that are wrong with the racing industry. That's jumps racing, uh, wastage, the killing of horses that fail to make the grade. Uh, In horse racing, the use of the whip and the racing of two-year-old horses. And so CPR has been campaigning on these four fronts for the last um, nearly 10 years, about eight years now. And CPR always does something good for the Spring Racing Carnival. Now, we've got protests coming up um, at Flemington, Derby Day. Um, There's a couple of others. There's also a protest on the Monday before the, the Monday, the day before the Melbourne Cup public holiday that will be in federation square um that is when the uh, racing industry has its uh self-congratulatory parade down swanston street uh cpr will be there campaigning and making its voice heard having a voice there for the horses and that to be goes from about 11 a.m until 1 p.m so if you can come along and support us on that Monday, that will be most appreciated. On the Tuesday is our annual picnic and protest, and that's held 
uh, at a little, there's a little triangular park near the entrance to Flemington Racecourse, uh, next to Kensington Bowls Club. Uh, so if you can come along, um, that is a picnic, a vegan picnic, um, embracing all aspects of veganism and celebrating it, and in so doing, showing our opposition to the racing industry. We have placards, uh, we have flags, uh, we have potentially, if there is a uh, horse dying on the day, a potentially large group of people who can go down to the front gates and have an impromptu protest. So quite a lot of things can uh, uh, come from that event. And it's a very social event, so if you're at all interested in getting involved in animal activism, come to that picnic and protest at the uh, small park next to Kensington Bowls Club. Um, near the entrance to Flemington Racecourse on the day of the Spring Racing Carnival on Melbourne Cup Day. So those are the events that are going on. For more information, go to the website. That is horseracingkills.com. There's another thing that was going on at the moment, and we're asking people if they would like to get their car rear window stenciled with a message saying something like, is the party really worth it? Horseracingkills.com. That's a removable uh, plastic spray-on logo and message that you can get done for free. Just contact horseracingkills.com. Uh, Go to the website, contact us, and we will come or arrange to meet you at a suitable place and get that sprayed onto your car back window to show your op- op- opposition to the Spring Racing Carnival and the cruelty of the horse racing industry. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.